The views, opinions, and findings contained in this podcast are those of the hosts and subject matter experts. They should not be construed as official Department of Defense positions, policies, or decisions unless designated by other official documentation. Welcome to Picking Your Brain, a podcast from the Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence, or TBICOE, that focuses on the care and recovery of service members and veterans who have sustained a TBI. In June of 2022, the Department of Defense released the Warfighter Brain Health Initiative Strategy and Action Plan, outlining the department's direction to better address the brain health needs of its service members, their families, line leaders, commanders, and their communities at large. The Strategy and Action Plan addresses blast exposures, potentially concussive events, and short- and long-term effects of TBI, aiming to optimize brain health and mitigate the injury. That's why this Brain Injury Awareness Month, TBICOE is promoting the theme, Be a Brain Warrior, Protect, Treat, Optimize. A brain warrior is someone who protects their head and maintains operational readiness. Being a brain warrior means improving the ability of healthcare providers to identify, care for, and treat service members and veterans affected by TBI. A brain warrior actively understands the importance of seeking care for a concussion and knows when they've been exposed to a potentially concussive event. Brain warriors ensure our nation's warfighters perform at their optimized capacity by using the latest clinical tools to treat patients, improve outcomes, and maintain a ready medical force. The Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, Sergeant Major Troy Black, understands what's necessary to be a brain warrior. As the Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General David Berger, Sergeant Major Black has encountered numerous potentially concussive events and has led by example by seeking care for his injuries. In this interview with TBICOE Branch Chief Captain Scott Coda, Sergeant Major Black explains how discipline and leadership begin with individual Marines. Thanks again for joining us, Sergeant Major Black. Hi, and welcome to this very special episode of Picking Your Brain. I'm your host today, Amanda Gano. I'm joined today by Captain Scott Coda, Branch Chief at Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence. And we're both very excited to speak today with Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, Sergeant Major Troy Black. Thanks for joining us today, Sergeant Major. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Any questions before we really get started? No, no questions. I just made a comment up front. One, thanks for continuing the discussion on TBI. I think it's quick to get past something, put it in a rearview mirror, right? And kind of forget about like it was a thing, right? We might discuss PTS a little bit, like nothing new there either, right? right? But, you know, history has a little bit of dips and valleys. We'll find out in the next conflict, it won't be IEDs, it won't be concussions, it'll be something else. Mm -hmm. However, there will still be concussions, there will still be sucking chest wounds, amputations, bullet wounds, there will still be all those things. Right, but as you guys have realized in our last conflict, the understanding of how the brain works, the effects of concussions, we took to a new level. So we don't want to forget these lessons. Thank you to the Intrepid Clinic, right? I mean, we, we have invested in the Intrepid Clinic for a reason. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, mm -hmm. knock on wood, that's wood right there. We maintain that investment because those are terminal injuries. So I'll, I'll leave it there as open comment. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's very good because the the wounds of war, you know, and this was, of course, a major impact over the last 20 years because of the weapons that our adversaries uh, and enemies were using against us, you know, in uh, that conflict. Uh, but as we get into urban and or other types of potential future wars, 
whether it be near peer or something like we saw previously, the weapon systems will change potentially. But I think that the impact on decision making and the brain will always be an effort of our enemies in some way, because the speed of decisions is critical for our success as a nation and as a DOD. So, um, you know, again, can I get a comment on that, sir? And just yeah, offer this as, as, as perspective. I think the last 20 years, and I'll say we keep using 20 years. We've been using the word 20 years for like 15 years. I'm not sure how long we have been involved in the global war on terrorism at this point, but I don't disagree, but maybe a different counterpoint to that. We now have the technology and understanding different now. But if anybody's ever seen the series Band of Brothers, anybody seen that? Mm -hmm. Yes. There's a scene in there where they're outside the town of Foy, right? And the reality of that battle and that artillery barrage they were under, I can't imagine that didn't cause concussion. So the idea that now that we've had IEDs and we're inside vehicles and loud things occur, I don't think there's anything new since we've had the ability to understand concussions. Let's go back to like knights in armor. Getting banged on the head with a freaking mallet probably caused a concussion. So I think the technology and understanding might be different, but I don't see that changing. If we want to kind of think about the future of warfare, we don't want to rely too much on what's going on in Europe right now. But let's assume large artillery barrages, right, are no different any time in history since we've had artillery and the concussive effects of that that's timeless since we've had that experience and it's probably timeless going forward so the knowledge the capabilities the community's ability to understand the brain differently that's it that's changed yeah but no, not concussions they have not changed yeah shell shock was that symptomology back in the past right so it wasn't identified as tbi it wasn't identified as pts but it was shell shock you know, now there's some clarity as to the influence of one on the other, both together in isolation as well, uh, you know, and the resourcing that is becoming more available to assist with that process as individual right. service members go through and recover from those right. events. But you're right. I mean, we're seeing the same thing at this point. Yeah, we can learn from Ukraine for mm -hmm. sure because of what you stated like that, too. Yeah, and we're learning more and more about these TBI injuries every day. I mean, research is still emerging. I think a lot of TBI work is really still in its infancy. We're still learning a lot about the effects of concussion and long-term impacts and things like that. So research is imperative to that. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. And I think it'll be terminal too. I mean, look at sports, right? No surprises. Yeah. yeah, impact and other things, right? No surprise here. But, you know, being a high school football player many, many years ago, I'm sure it, my head hurt because of that as much as it did today. <laughs> All right. So, Sergeant Major, for some of our listeners who may not be aware, could you please tell us a little bit about your role as Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps and, and what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I'll try to be as concise as possible because if I tried to explain what any of the service senior listed do on a daily basis, that'd be a whole series in and of itself. So, quite frankly, the Marine Corps was the first service to really have a service senior enlisted for the service chief. So, the Commandant of the Marine Corps Back in the 50s, he decided, you know what? We need representation of the enlisted here at the headquarters level. So the bill of the sergeant major of the Marine Corps was created. And like most things in the Marine Corps, we got to say that because we were first. And then the rest of the services followed a bit over time. But, but why I mention that is, is it's imperative that all of the services, we recognize all the services have a service senior enlisted that sits with their service chief and represents not just the enlisted, but the entirety of the people, both the Marines in this case, sailors that serve within our Marine Corps, and their families. So 
the people side of the house. Specific responsibilities, you know, using the phrase principal enlisted advisor to the commandant of the Marine Corps sounds like kind of fancy. But for the listeners that are commanders and definitely the listeners that understand what their senior enlisted do, that is a mouthful. But basically, I advise the commandant of the Marine Corps on all matters that relate to the morale, the welfare, discipline, mission success, readiness of the entire Marine Corps. Now, that portfolio is as wide as you can imagine it could be. That's personnel readiness. That's material readiness. That's future operations, current operations, that's training, education, it's manpower, it's the budget of the Corps, it's all of those things at the headquarters that really impacts the entire institution. The Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps has a voice in all of that. Uniquely, the Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps is also responsible for a couple of service-level documents, leading Marines, sustaining the transformation. Those are pivotal documents in our Marine Corps, and what is it that makes a Marine a Marine? It might seem that those are kind of timely things given the current events, but absolutely not. The fact of the matter is the ethos and the culture of the Marine Corps is terminal. So we're developing a publication in and around that as well. And a whole host of other things we could go on for days and talk about, you know, what my or my peers do on a daily basis. Sounds like you're very busy, Sergeant Major. (laughs) It can be, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So my background a little bit, I was active duty Navy physician assistant, and I was not in the Navy for very long, only about six years, but I had the honor of being stationed with the Marines my whole six years in the Navy. So one of my most proudest accomplishments was actually earning my Fleet Marine Force pin. For those listeners who may not be aware, basically the Marine Corps doesn't have their own medical assets. So Navy corpsmen, Navy docs, Navy physician assistants, nurses, things like that. And then if you've been stationed with the Marine Corps for a period of time, you can take a written exam, you can sit for an oral board, you learn all the ins and outs of the Marine Corps and pass a Marine Corps PFT. And then you can earn this nice, shiny Fleet Marine Force badge that you get to proudly wear on your uniform. And Captain Coda, I see that you've got that FMF badge on your uniform right now. I do. And I'm very proud that I have it as well. Captain Coda, could you talk a little bit about your service with the Marine Corps and how that may have shaped your leadership here at TBICOE? Absolutely. So I've been in the Navy for a little over 28 years and will retire at 30 coming up. So it started a long time ago, back in the day after I finished my first GMO tour because I was with Seabees and then went to Marine Corps Recruit Depot and ran Recruit Health in San Diego. So that was my first experience with the Marine Corps. I went on to residency training at Camp Pendleton and did family medicine residency there at Camp Pendleton, and then went overseas, did a few other tours, and then ultimately at one point was 2009, came back to then 1st Raider Battalion. I was the surgeon there. I was the surgeon at the Raider Regiment, so I came out to Camp Lejeune from Pendleton. My family and I moved out there, spent time as the MARSOC Regimental Surgeon, the MARSOC uh, Command Surgeon, and then ultimately went to SOCOM. So I've been exposed to the Marine Corps in many different ways, and I'll say that every experience has been very gratifying. The Marine enlisted, the Marine officers, I've learned from them tremendously, not only from my patients, but also from the officers that I've served with and the Marine enlisted that I've served with. So, Yeah, I think there's like a special relationship between the Marine Corps units and their medical counterparts. Sergeant Major, do you agree with that? So only a Marine will understand this. Some of the best Marines in the Marine Corps are corpsmen. And and I'll just leave it at that. I've seen corpsmen do things some of my best friends in the Marine Corps growing up have been corpsmen. We had the opportunity to be an MLG Sergeant Major and have the medical and dental battalions inside of that organization. 
Yeah, absolutely. I always felt like the Marines had my back and, and I always had the Marines back too. So I, I just loved my time with the Marine Corps. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that relationship is very tight. Were you ever injured or had TBI that you had Corman assist you with or the medical department at any point? And, you know, some of the prepared questions are going to get into this later, but I, I can go ahead and cover most of that now. So most of my time with, spent with Corman was not worrying about myself so much. I've been, luck, knock on wood, relatively healthy throughout yeah, my career. But in particular, Marine. I was in 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines from 2009 to 2011. And probably as a career infantryman, and I would say I more or less was up to that point, that was a good deployment, right? That's when we were doing a changeover and sang in with the British Royal Marines. There was what I would consider probably uh, several tours in combat as an infantryman. That might have been the most exciting deployment that I had. But anyway, the point is, my personal experience, other than, you know, doing silly things like falling off buildings and twisting ankles, which isn't really where we want our corpsmen to be spending their time, but in combat, being able to witness and observe what our corpsmen are doing. I spent a lot of time with a couple of corpsmen in particular at the headquarters of the battalion. But it really came in this discussion about concussions, my own personal experience. I think in that deployment, it was not unique. To, to any other any other organization, but myself and the battalion commander had five or six vehicles just blown up underneath us, like hit IEDs. Not unusual for the environment, right? But the point is inside that MATV or that four by MRAP concussion, right? You get the concussive effects of that. Uh, we always had a corpsman that was in our jump section with us. And as soon as a vehicle would hit, there comes Doc following some, some Marine with a Valon, make sure there was no more IEDs going up to the vehicle. Mm -hmm. And, sir, you may remember, and ma'am, when you were a PA, you probably could recall this. We used to have the MACE exam, right? Then we started figuring out different grades of concussions and what their effects were. It was like watching a World War II movie the first time I got a MACE exam. It was like, hey, what year is this? 2010. Okay. Is it day or night? I mean, I'm making fun of the questions, but you know, the questions were like, if you could like give a response back really quick, you're good. Let's go freaking push. Right. Yeah. Then we got into, wait a minute, an hour or two later, let me check you again and make sure. And then all of a sudden you couldn't tell if it was like day or night. We, we learned a lot there. I've had many Mace exams. I know exactly what day and time it is. I knew who won the Super Bowl in 2010. But the point is I've seen Corman do these exams with TBI. I mean, I have been around Corman my entire career. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. that MACE exam, the military acute concussion evaluation, and that's uh, now it's the MACE 2. So we do have an, a more updated version of that. And that is a product put out by the Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence. That was actually one of my first experiences while I was deployed as well, is performing these MACE 2, MACE exams then on Marines who were involved in a rollover. And I had a whole bunch of guys coming in and I just was knocking out concussion evaluations. So, you know, that's really what sparked my interest in getting into this field of traumatic brain injury and, and health. And that screening tool has been an excellent product. And in development, what's been good is the feedback by those in the field that have assisted in trying to expedite or change some of the questions and parts of the tools that are now inherent in the MACE 2. So it's a very good screening tool as far as that's concerned. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit because your history as a infantryman 
and you talk about exposures, you talked about some exposures when you were downrange, but what's your take on longitudinal exposures, kind of those low level blast effect and the impact on the Marine Corps, specifically those high risk MOSs like infantry, artillery, special operations, the training cadres? That's tough because what we learn over time, right, is every time you are around an event, they just accumulate, right? It's like compounding interest. And I think it's really interesting that we often talk about service in the military as a sacrifice and, you know, you do these things. I think sometimes we think that means I missed a birthday party or Christmas or something like that. There is really a sacrifice when you serve. It depends upon where you serve at. I think that's moot. Let me talk about my experience because I I can't talk about anybody else's, right? So I'll, I'll just talk about mine. I am an infantryman. I grew up as a machine gunner. Well, that sounds like fun, but when you shoot thousands of rounds of ammunition, about six to eight inches away from, you know, where the rounds are going inside the machine gun, that's just concussion, concussion at the, at the cyclic rate or sustained rate of fire, right? They're small, but you're getting that blast. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but it's probably not severe enough to have like, you know, an effect immediately, but it's the combination of the things. Okay. Well, you also go through demolitions training. Okay. Well, whether it's about that much C4 or a quarter stick of C4 is irrelevant. It's still a blast. I've done close quarter battle training. Well, that's inside of a building, which holds the effects of the blast inside of it, right? And then you still have these charges and you're doing things inside buildings. That all impacts your brain. So if you think about all of that, plus playing football or on a regimental football team, plus, you know, you're getting into a vehicle, even with your helmet on one time, it's a price of doing business. Those things all make you into a better Marine, better capable of fighting. But all those small events, as we well know, you know, we got minimum safe distance when you're doing bomb runs out of 29 Palms. The bombs are landing way out there, the 500 pounders. Well, that's so you can see the target. But when you're doing it in combat, effective the safe area there depends upon where the enemy's at. Safety is paramount in combat or garrison. But doing it in the middle of the training area, 29 Palms, and doing it in a tree line 150 meters away, two different effects from that, right? Yeah. But, but these things, they start to add up. And then what? I think what we've learned over the several, probably the last four or five years, at least as far as I've done research, we've really come to the conclusion that, okay, all these things compound, but now what? And so you mentioned you were at MARSOC, and it's kind of where I'll close it off at. About two years ago, after being in this job for about a year, I went down to MARSOC and got the brain test and found out, actually, there's ways you can mitigate, maybe reduce some of these blast effects or concussive events, right? You can train your brain. You can think differently, brain HQ, all that kind of stuff. You can actually train your brain to kind of get past some of that and get back to some sort of normalcy and and manage it. And I think that's really where we're trying to go to, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Sergeant Major, you mentioned several times about the impact of these low-level blast exposures, particularly in training and in garrison. So it's important to note here that we're not just talking about a deployed combat environment. A lot of these TBI injuries and this low-level blast exposure occurs in garrison and during training exercises. And so there is a lot of research because right now... in terms of brain health and performance, low-level blast exposure, you know, doesn't really meet that threshold of being a diagnosable concussion or TBI, but we're really looking at what type of effect is there on the brain. And Captain Coda, I know you lead that line of effort with warfighter brain health and the effects of low-level blast exposure. Can you talk a little bit about that effort and sure. research? Absolutely. So Section 734 is part of the 2018 NDAA. And the Marine Corps bases have been paramount in conducting some of that research on low-level blast. At Lejeune RLLBE, which is 
low-level blast research took place. It's finishing up at SOI East, um, which looks at those exposures from the training cadre. So like your history too, Sergeant Mayor, those guys that are around the weapons all the time, the machine guns, the Carl Gustav, some of those other weapons, what that impact looks like, not only at, at the point of initial exposure, but moving out toward months out and running a series of testing as far as biomarkers, imaging, neurocognitive assessment, balance tests, hearing tests, the whole gamut of Mm -hmm. testing to see what that impact looks like. It's early, but the analysis has enabled us to put out a safety recommendation, which is a four PSI safety recommendation that is circulating for final signature at this point. We'll go out through the safety community as kind of a line in the sand and a start point to get at those low-level blast exposures and evaluation so there can be a time for recovery. And doing that with the operational community to ensure that those recommendations don't impact training. Mm -hmm. You know, so there is a large gamut of what's happening within warfighter brain health and that section 734 work, which will finish up in the end of 2023, but has been feeding the warfighter brain health initiative, which will be a program for longitudinal surveillance of blast and the impact of not just blast, but also impact types of activities and other types of directed energy on the brain. And so it'll be an opportunity to get baseline and then periodic reevaluation instead of just pre-deployment, post-deployment, mm-hmm. and, and maybe even sooner reevaluation than the recommended every five years with a ANAM neurocognitive assessment testing and other self-reporting requirements in there, but depending on your MOS. So if you're a higher risk, you can do it sooner. We're waiting at some point when the services kind of get their teeth into this initiative. It's kind of at the start point now to see what that feedback will be. And we think it'll be variable depending on your risk profile. Yeah. So you mentioned something really quick. What I don't want to do is miss your point. You mentioned, you know, pre and post deployment. In my opinion, that was phenomenal when we started doing the PHA, getting the baseline, doing the cognitive assessment, chase a little ball around the screen, and then come back and doing it at the end of deployment, right? And doing it at the part of the PDHRA. We shouldn't blow past that because just talk about recent history, what four deployments to Iraq or Afghanistan, my last deployment to Afghanistan, we were doing that. So the previous ones, I mean, that's just, that's a whole evolution of understanding, right? How your brain works, how we can see how well you can react and do these things that your, your mind must do, baseline yourself, and then come back into the deployment, reevaluate. Again, I don't want to miss the point. You're talking about doing it more often with more regularity, but then you can right. learn, you know, in those quick turn deployments like we were in in the mid 2000s, you can hit one pretty soon after that, doing a pre-deployment again, like, you know, six months later, bam. And come back again. So I, I have never seen the data on those things as far as a cumulative. But the fact of the matter is, that's in advance. We've learned and we're doing more things, you know, to get after and understand how the brain works and the effects of these concussions or TBIs in particular it has on it. And what you brought up, the post-deployment is almost like you're hitting a reset 
if there has been a change from pre to post deployment, right? Yeah. It's almost like your hearing test where you, you hit a reset. Our big thing on the MHS side is looking for resources to help with recovery to get you at your optimum level. So it's a performance-based strategy rather than an injury strategy at that point, which I think is critically important because most of those low-level or mild TBI recover. They'll mm -hmm. recover to some point and there won't be degradation. And what you talked about, some of those pre-injury or pre-exposure capability, can we get your performance to an even higher level if you practice these things and train yeah. in some way, right? I think it's important to, to put that in there, sir, because we talk, we talk about evaluating as though it's like after an event. Yeah. Training doesn't prepare you for what you didn't do well. It makes you better at what you're going to do, right? It's, it's more forward thinking. So you know you're very well aware of the POTIF program, right? Your time at MARSOC. They're treating but they're also training. Some of this discussion has been pivotal in where we've come the last three years in the Marine Corps on holistic human performance. Now we're putting it all together, mind, body, spirit, social, physical, mental, and behavioral fitness. But it's more than just, you know, the bone and the muscle. It's everything else that makes that warfighter capable. That's holistic. And this is part of it, obviously, in two aspects. But yeah, I get really excited about human performance. Yeah, I mean, these are both great points. So, I mean, I think the biggest thing is in order to get that information and to train our brains, these Marines have to come in and they have to be seen, right? They have to be evaluated. And so when we spoke with the SEAC, he said that preventative measures to keep our warfighters ready to perform their combat mission, it should be looked at as a preventative measure instead of a method of force shaping or trying to get somebody out. So I think that historically, there has been sort of like a stigma associated with going and getting a medical evaluation. So Sergeant Major, how is the Marine Corps hoping to change that stigma? And like you said, we want to look at this more like maintenance. This is preventative right. it's maintenance. Performance. It's performance, right? It's optimizing performance. Absolutely. The Commandant has asked me to find a way to bring new ideas from the Marine Corps into the headquarters. One of the first ones we did. And Sharon, when were you at MARSOC last, sir? Uh, I was there 2015, but I went to the Sergeant okay. Major Symposium that was held at MARSOC for, yes, I think I met you at that point. Um, That's right, sir. Group. That's right. I knew I saw the name, but I, I, I see thousands of people. But at the end of the day, sir, so that Warfire Summit, I thought that would be the easiest thing to sort of bring together. Come to find out the human is a very complex machine. So guess what? It's harder than you think. But ma'am, to your point, I cringe when I hear the term stigma. Me too. Stigma is in and of itself has a stigma to it. Let's think about it for a moment. The definition of core is the following. The instant wanting of beings to all orders, respect for authority, and self-reliance. In order to be disciplined, you must understand yourself first. To the CX point, our job is to ensure someone can be in the fight, not find reasons to remove them from the fight. Because at the end of the day, let's, let's, let's get down to the really brass tacks of it. When you are in a fight, only one side wins. Very loose analogy with sports because nobody's really going to not come home after on a Sunday afternoon, right? We hope. But, but in the business that we're in, there's a reality. So part of the responsibility on the individual is to say, yeah, my bell's rung. I got to pull out here for a minute until I can recover. And we can talk about how the mace kind of developed in that 2010 time frame because I think that's important to the conversation. It removed part of the stigma. But stigma first starts with the individual. If I think I'm going to be shunned, I am not going to say anything. 
That does not mean the institution in of itself is creating an atmosphere of stigma. Individuals, however, may say, okay, you're a quitter. That might create stigma. But those are individuals. Here's what I'd offer to anybody. One, ask for help. Be open about it. Because if you're the guy who knows they got their bell rung, and everybody's looking at you going, well, you didn't do the right thing, so therefore, I'm not going to do the right thing. That's, that's setting the example a little bit. We can talk hours about stigma, mm -hmm. but you have a question. We were going to talk about mental health. Let me give you my idea of stigma and mental health. In no time in our history as a nation has the mental health system been overwhelmed like it is right now. That's way far away from stigma to me. In your all's experience with traumatic brain injuries, you can tell that there's many more people that will come forward now than they would in the past. It is not 100% like, okay, we understand it. We have a machine that can zap you like Star Trek and figure out, ooh, concussion, and off the battlefield you go. We might get there one day. Hopefully. But until that happens, there's always going to be this, I didn't get help because it was going to ruin my career. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, if you're someone like me who did say, hey, you know what? I don't feel right on like day five after getting all the wheels blown off of a vehicle. And I might need to talk about that for a minute. Get, get your evaluation. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. And off you go within a certain protocols, right? So stigma to me starts with the individual, but the system in and of itself, I, I don't think there's systematic stigma on healthcare, frankly. Yeah, I agree with you. And thanks so much for bringing those points up. I think that's particularly important. The onus being on the individual and the willingness to come forward with these two injuries that we are talking about today, traumatic brain injury and mental health conditions, because I can't look at you and know whether or not you're experiencing a mental health condition. I can't look at you and know whether or not you've experienced a concussion or a TBI. It is an invisible injury. And so it is the responsibility of the service member to seek help and to understand some of those signs. And that's the type of thing that we try and educate both service members and leadership on here at TBICUE. What should I be looking for so that I know when I have a problem and when I need to come forward? So Captain Coda, can you talk a little bit about some of the communication tools that we have between our service members, leadership, Marine Corps leadership, and medical providers? How do we at TBICOE bridge that gap? Yeah. Let me make one comment too about stigma subject. And I think through the years, you know, having been in for so long, the culture shift of support, the experience with having served with the Marine Corps through the years, the Marine Corps is very supportive mm -hmm. of individuals going in to get assistance, no matter what it's for. Yes. Uh, you know, the leadership is probably sitting right there with that individual. In most instances, they look after each other and they build each other up. And it's been an amazing thing to witness in that regard and employ into my own leadership style, Sergeant Major. So when it comes to TBI, I think the transition to a performance culture, mm -hmm. you know, if you go to the gym, train everything throughout your entire life, train everything, try to be better in everything that you do, including social, spiritual, whatever it is, so that when you're ready to go down range in support of our nation's mission, you're a full up round and you don't have to worry about anything in that regard. And I think that's critically important. The resources throughout MHS and that we offer here at TBICOE, we have our regional education coordinators that are able to assist not only the medical community, but also the operational community and be able to brief on TBI, give background to 
the commanders and the senior enlisted, along with the individual service member and their family. So it's just a matter of requesting that support, and they can easily do that across the spectrum. The other piece is they're able to provide specific training on the MACE2, the clinical recommendations that we have, and then one really excellent algorithm, which is the progressive return to activity, which is a monitoring and a phased-in approach so that you don't inadvertently get someone out there too soon who then may bounce back because they didn't recover fully or have long-term symptomology as far as that's concerned either. So it's a good phased-in approach. And I think that allows me to bring something up, and it's with the advent of adding athletic trainers throughout the force, Sergeant Major, how do you see them working into support for TBI and other, of course, musculoskeletal and other types of exposures that individuals will have long term? What will be the impact of adding athletic trainers to the force? So again, back on human performance, I think yeah. I use this following analogy. So let's say I use the Marine Corps. We buy an aircraft. Okay, when you buy that aircraft, it goes through a program of record, and then that aircraft's life, once you buy it, there are non-negotiables. It will get data upgrades, not a question. It will get air pressure in the tires. There's checklists, right? Before that thing can take off, there's a list of things that must happen. They are non-negotiable. Every time a plane has a mishap, you go through that list of things that were non-negotiables, and you usually find one of them didn't get full attention. We're not making this about aircraft readiness, but the point is, when we buy an aircraft for 30 years, it comes with everything. When we buy a, a human into the military, if you're enlisted 30 years, it's not a package deal sometimes. All of the resources are available. Here's kind of where I bring it down. Every resource in the world is available. The problem is it's not required. I ask the question all the time, is fitness in the Marine Corps, and you can put it whatever service you want to, a requirement or a hobby? I get the same response every time. It's a requirement. And people tell me why. Well, you got to get PFT or CFT. I'm like, really? That's it? Because the fact of the matter is, some people run three miles once a year. And, and I don't care what service you're in. If the leadership are runners, you all are runners. That's a hobby. If your leadership, no matter what service it is, like to lift weights, you're all weightlifters. Those are all hobbies. But in holistic performance, right, it's the mind, the body, the spirit. The esprit, the teamwork, the morale, that social fitness that we keep making movies about and ignoring. <laughs> but the more you do this, the less what you are, the less social you are. Therefore, you can't adjust to change. You can't talk about, talk about spiritual fitness for a minute. So let's put it all together, right? I got a TBI. My head hurts. I'm doing things in my life that aren't making sense to me. I have PTS because I've seen or experienced not just in combat, but my life comes back to me because I'm old enough and mature enough in my brain to start to rationalize my life experience so far. And I've got no calling. There's no higher calling of purpose. There's no life purpose. What do I do? Then I get into suicidal behaviors or I get into self-treatment through alcohol and drug abuse. Or we get into all of those things. Are, those would not be negotiable if we purchased 30 years. They would all be part of what keeps it together. It does not fly unless these things happen. For the human, we don't put those resources as part of a requirement. I continue to pontificate, and you heard this maybe, sir, when we were working together at MARSOC and part of this program for human performance, fitness is a hobby. It's not necessarily a requirement. Total fitness. 
So with all of those things, your question about athletic trainers, I'm, and, I, and I'll bring it back around. Okay, so I'm an infantryman. And again, my personal experience is my personal experience. I used to also be a weightlifter. Probably shouldn't do military presses. Your shoulders are going to be shot, right? No matter how many weights you can do back in the day, you can't do them anymore because someone did not tell you how to get the same physical outcome by doing a different form of training to get there. Not to mention nutrition, sleep health, what's a good supplement, what's not a good supplement. You know, all of those things the athletic trainer brings to it, to TBI. I think just understanding how to train the body differently allows you to some sort of preventive measures. And you can go on a whole list of things maybe you shouldn't do, but at the end of the day, an athletic trainer's ability to train you how to get the same end state physically can put you in a situation where you may prevent other injuries by doing something right to get the same outcome differently, if that, if that helps your, your, your question. Yeah, and so maintaining the human weapon system like you would an aircraft, like you would a vehicle. That was a mantra that we brought up within the POTIF community throughout SOF. So it's critically important to be able to achieve that. And I think those athletic trainers will assist in that process and also allow for proper training techniques, employ new innovations with regard to the potential for brain training and other activities like that, and then be able to monitor if there are events, like if you guys are at combatives or you're at a range or something like that, you know, along with the core staff, because again, those are the docs, you know, and the medical community working in collaboration. I think that supporting structure in a performance system, like the Marines have always alluded to throughout their history of maintaining themselves completely, I think it will be critically important. And we're looking at within DHA, and the athletic trainer community on how to expand that scope of services to ensure, because some of the other services are also bringing athletic trainers on board, specifically the Army. You know, I think they took the Marine Corps model, you know, saw the success there. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I see the smile. Sergeant so Major's I'm smirking. <laughs> He's like, yeah, You know how it goes, Sergeant the Major. Army right? took it. Marine Corps. <laughs> So those are those are great innovations, you know, that, again, the Marines are leading from the front uh, as usual. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you talked about total force fitness and you talked a little bit about aircraft maintenance. And I want to talk about this word readiness. So it's sort of along those same lines, right? I think sometimes that word just gets thrown around as, am I in the green? Have I checked all the boxes? Have I clicked through my JKO training? Like historically, I think hasn't been given as much weight as maybe it is hopefully going to in the future, or hopefully we're going to change the definition of what readiness means to be this total body, mind, spirit type definition of readiness. But I think that is partly with the medical side of the house, but then also we have to change how unit commanders view readiness rather than those checks in the box. So Sergeant Major, how is the Marine Corps changing what readiness means to unit commanders and other Marine Corps leadership? Let me talk on both sides of this because there's like somewhere in the middle is usually the right answer here. We have to first and foremost understand that there's 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week. I've never been a commander, but I've worked for, been in around and served in lots of commands. The amount of things that a commander must do to ensure that a unit is prepared and trained to deploy is more than 24 hours in a day. So time, time is the one thing we can never find enough of at the end of the year. We can always find more money. It's amazing. You can always find 
more orders. There's plenty of things in the world to do at the end of the year, but we can never come up at the end of the year, closing out the fourth quarter and say, hey, here's like two more months. You just can't do that. So the list of things that have to be done is too many. Now, let's put that in perspective. Let's say you're in a training support battalion, TSB, and there's, I'm making up a number, 50 trucks out there. You have to have humans available to work on 50 trucks. How much time does the truck get? How much time does the human get to be ready? Mm-hmm. I'm making up numbers. It takes 16 man hours for every hour the vehicle has to operate. I'm going into this time thing for a reason because of the thing. Put four Marines on it. It takes four Marines four hours for every hour the vehicle operates. Well, if you're at Camp Pendleton, it's an hour drive to San Mateo and back to Mainside. All right. So a one day trip up there and back requires 32 hours. The time starts to shrink. So how does the commander build into that requirement of readiness? How to ensure the Marines sailors are ready? Time. What I would offer, and sir, you've mentioned it, thinking about human performance holistically is much different than thinking about taking your PFT. Okay, medical and dental recall is going now. Get everybody the dental, get everybody back. Because the dental hit list, by the way, dental. Historically, number one reason there's casualties <laughs> on the battlefield, right? We rock gets on, yuck mouth. But at the end of the day, all those things have to be done. Well, what if your dental appointment made six months ago because time, right? Take a dental surgery happens to also be day five of an ITX. Does the Marine leave there and go back to Camp Lejeune? Does the medical or dental battalion send out a mobile team to do that? Does the commander have time in an ITX to work full six function logistics? It's about time. Readiness in particular, material readiness costs actually less than human readiness, but material readiness, it's flags on a map, right? You have to have the material readiness. You have to have the human readiness. For a commander, it's always a challenge in time. Oh, oh, by the way, don't forget the training readiness, right? S rating, T ratings, you know, you get into DERS. I love DERS. Everybody read the book on DERS? It's amazing. It's very simple. It either is or it is not. Not, well, if we had this, we could do that. It's very interesting. I think the challenge for readiness across the board has nothing to do with desire, drive, as much as it does with time and resources. No commander wants a jacked up unit that can't deploy and be ready to go. None. Zero. How much time do I have to do all the things I have to do? And whatever the priorities are as well, as far as that's concerned. You know, so for, you've been you a know. commander. You know it's not a question of what the priority is. It's the priority of what you're not going to do over what you're going to have time to do. Unfortunately. Time is yeah. a factor. I think we're probably at the point, and again, I'll just let me, let me cut it off here because we're going to our time, I think. But at some point in time, we've got to determine what are we not going to do anymore in order to do more other things. Time is the factor. Is the mission precedent? Is the material readiness precedent? Is the individual personnel readiness precedent what's priority yeah and i'm hearing that human readiness is extremely important and should be a higher priority in terms of you know we talk about the marines most effective weapon you've said before is is their brain they've got to be able to think they've got to be able to react make decisions in order to be ready to deploy so sergeant major let me switch gears just a little bit Can you talk a little bit about Force Design 2030 and how the change in Marine Corps structure might impact TBI care or even just how that structure looks in general? Well, I think I'd offer maybe just a perspective. 
If anybody thinks there isn't a lot of innovation going on in the Marine Corps, read some of the press. There's a lot of change has occurred, not just with our current Commandant General Berger. General Neller put us on a path to Future Force 2025 that really set the stage for what does the future of conflict look like? Let's make a couple of assumptions. Violent extremists have always been around, literally almost throughout history, and probably is always going to be violent extremism. Of course, they can do counterinsurgency as a special refined task. And I know it's difficult for some people to hear that. It's much different than peer-to-peer nation-state conflict. We can debate whether there's not terrorist events going on, whether there's not an insurgency going on. We can, we can put these words we're very familiar with doctrinally right now into the mix. But the fact of the matter is a nation-state is in conflict with a nation-state. That looks much different than anything we've experienced in the last 20 years, save the proverbial OIF push to Baghdad. That sort of number of days there where there was like huge conflict going on. Boy, that's, this is a different place to operate. So force design takes us to a place where we can now compete with, I'll call it enemy. I'm done using the term adversary. I might get in trouble for saying that, but we have an enemy on this planet, not just an adversary or a peer threat. It's an enemy. Let's get back to readiness and I'll, I'll make a quick point, ma'am. Our previous nation state adversary enemy, the Soviet Union, had more of everything than we had. We know that. More missiles, more bombs, more planes, more tanks, more, more everything, right? Problem is, they didn't have as good people. And my point about the individual Marine is the fact that in any other military on the face of the planet, and, I, and I'll bring in all of our rest of our military services in this conversation, is the acting, thinking, ready, capable, supplied, trained individual in the United States military that is the difference between success and failure in combat or even up to warfare against any enemy. But even a few of our peers that we are partners and allies with, we are the standard. I would argue, because I'm a Marine, and even there, the Marines are the standard. But our enemies are not there. They don't trust in their subordinates. They don't train them. They don't fully invest in their ability to win. To win. And we begin this conversation about a bit of that sacrifice. Here's the punchline. We train, we fight, we win. If you serve in a uniform, that's what we do in defense of our Constitution. So force design takes us to where the Marine Corps can fight and win against this new enemy that we have. That's where force design has taken us. And a lot of that has to do with talent management. That's human resource development, training and education command, how you develop the mind, the skills. And part of training education command has inside of it this thing called the human performance branch because it's the human that does all of that. That branch has gotten a lot of publicity. I won't steal their thunder, but we assisted them with this working group we did a couple of years ago that's resulted in, sir, what you were part of. That's really been a lot of emphasis on human performance branch to think now, okay, when we do X training over a course number of days, what's the best way to get the training, get the outcome, and what's the impact of the human in the process? That's some of that education piece. How do we think about the brain in that case? There's a piece in there about that. So force design has opened up all this innovation to think about warfare differently. What we know about the human, the material capabilities, the weapon systems, the IT, the AI, all of those things that put them together. I think about a force that's going to be able to not just compete, but win, win future conflicts. Because that's what we do. The rest of it looks good on paper, but that's what we do. You wear a uniform, that's what you do. Yeah, I love what you said about innovation and the adaptability of the Marine Corps. We always have to be changing as our enemy is changing, as technology is changing to meet those things. And so the, I'm sure on the Navy side or on the medical side too, there'll be some adaptations as force design comes into play.
Yep. Have you all yeah. seen any of the work being done on trying to take the uh, proverbial golden hour and move that into high end conflict? That's a very interesting because the you know the, those folks at the Joint Trauma System and my experience there at SOCOM was. And there was actually something that came out of the Joint Special Operation University that Dr. Rocky Farr, who was the former SOCOM surgeon uh, a few cycles prior to my tenure there, wrote a manuscript on death of the golden hour, right? And the, the conflicts that take place and whether or not you would need such things as prolonged field care because of the inability to Kazavak or Medivac people out of the field in that regard, especially mm -hmm. with high-level conflict. And mm -hmm. so the goal is always to try and get into that now, Platinum 15 even, as early as possible, identifying those injuries that you can resuscitate, recover, all of the above with the intent to get folks out of theater when platforms are available. But if there's air denial in any format, that's going to become even more difficult. So the ability to maintain an individual for a longer period of time in the battlefield has really placed an emphasis on increasing training for those corpsmen, those medics, you know, across the board, because they're the ones, and you know this, Sergeant Major, the corpsmen and the medics are the lifesavers. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that have to make the difference because they're the ones that are going to be with you in the fight and helping take care of those Marines that are injured. So we've learned a lot from past history, but I think we still have a ways to go. And those folks in the TC3 or the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Committees, the Surgical Combat Casualty Care Committees, and the Joint Trauma System are really leaning into innovation and increasing the capability at point of injury but also that time window of survivability mm -hmm. and improving that aspect as well. Yeah, and there's a lot of research and development efforts going into triage tools, like objective measures that whoever's on the front lines can use to make good decisions on whether or not to medevac someone. So in the world of TBI, things like TBI biomarkers and blood tests and some other devices and things like that are certainly in the works to help be able to triage people better and know when to medevac people and make good decisions. Well, and that's of critical importance to the TBI COE along with really the entire TBI community within DOD and in some instances academia is looking for exactly that, not only more rapid decision-making tools and technology that can be pushed forward to the point of injury, but also decision-making tools so that if you do CASAVAC someone, the appropriate resources are waiting for you yes. when you get to wherever it is that you're going to be further evaluated at high-level care. In Garrison, and you talked about this early on, the Intrepid Spirit Centers, mm -hmm. the Defense Intrepid Network, trying to stand up and standardize care across the board. And of course, the pearl is NICO, which is the Intrepid Spirit Center of Excellence here at Walter Reed. So, And then I'll say, too, that the VA Tampa PrEP and some of the other PrEP programs are helping with those that are injured and have definitive injuries go through those programs and to recovery and or get the resources that they need. So that's a critical element as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sergeant Major, I think we're rapidly approaching our time limit here. Do you have any final words of wisdom for our listeners? Words of wisdom. That's, that's funny. 
anything that comes out of your mouth is, is wisdom. wisdom right? <laughs> Let me talk about just really quickly. We all have experience. I'll just offer one. After a deployment, I was asked to speak at the Combat Operational Stress Conference held in San Diego. It was back in 2010. And why I think that's relevant here. We had this big conference, right? It had all these doctors and PhDs in it, military leaders and civilians. They were all thinking about combat operational stress. And a couple of comments were made. And it was really interesting. We had a couple of individuals who were really leading this cost conversation for the Marine Corps. And I'll never forget what they said. And I was up on this panel and they were asking me what I thought about combat operational stress. I said, well, number one, when you go to combat, there's stress. Epiphany, right? There's no way to remove stress from combat. There's no way to remove concussions or TBI from combat. So the idea that there's going to be this magical place one day where we can go, okay, it prevents concussions. We're probably not there. By the time we get that helmet, we'll have laser beams that'll melt through the helmet. So we won't be using bombs anymore. I'm just, let's be honest, right? But what was said is, is part of this panel, I got a great response. Well, what do you all think? And there was the two individuals that were representing the Marine Corps. And they offered this pamphlet. And the pamphlet had like stuff in it. And it was five paragraph order. It was the troop leading steps, BAMSIS. It was JJ did tie buckle, the leadership traits. And it was the Marine Corps leadership principles. And of all that leadership, they highlighted two in particular. One was set the example. And the other one was know your Marines and look out for their welfare. So how I relate that to this. Set the example means as an individual, do the right thing. Knowing your Marines and looking out for their welfare doesn't mean just the commandant or the commander. If I'm a fire team leader, that means those three Marines. Oh, by the way, and myself. I'm responsible for four people there, not just three. Me, myself, and I are part of leadership. That's setting the example piece. And the rest of leadership kind of follows that pattern. This conversation on TBI or brain health or combat operational stress or PTS is incumbent upon all of us to be open. We live in a world that's more accepting of how open we are when we communicate with each other. That's a good place to be. What we're not comfortable with is the response we get when we're open like that. And what we're also not comfortable with is when someone needs help, there's a fine line between they need help now they need help in a little while, tomorrow or next week. Most of the time when people tell you that they need help, they think you think they need help now. But as leaders, we're like, solve a problem, move on. Because winning is the goal. And when you want to win, someone off the field, you replace them with a new player to the CX point. Yeah, but when that player comes off the field, you got to do what with them? Rehab them, teach them, train them, fix them, get them back in the game because they're part of the team. That's all got to do with leadership. And that's kind of the moral of the story. Injuries will occur, casual evacuations, medical evaluations are part of the business of, of winning in our sport. It's not a sport, by the way. It's the most serious thing humans do, right? Is locate each other, close with each other, and try to destroy each other. That's just the facts of what we do. So how do you train the humans to better operate in an environment within the capabilities that they have, the training that they've been given, and with the intent of protecting our nation's freedoms and our constitution? I think we're doing an excellent job. I think Marines today are as prepared to win today as they ever have been. I think we're going to get better over time. That's what we do. We try to get better. We're never satisfied with where we're at. I think force design is taking us there. And I think everything that the medical community is doing, lessons learned about how we put scope and scale on that and be able to take care forward to understand that the visible injuries are as important as the invisible injuries and put that into the warfighters' capability to understand that and how to have leaders understand that and manage that in conflict, in combat, because 
Casualty is also incur less warfighting capabilities. So how do you have that balance and manage that? I think some of that is TBIs and concussive events. But it's the whole piece that we're trying to focus on now. And I think with all the resources that we have, we're finally in a position to put it all together and talk holistically about how we take care of people because we're going to go to combat. History tells us there's a 100% chance we're going to go back. Thanks for what you guys are doing, mostly. Thanks for what you all are doing. And everybody that's invested in the same conversation that you are, because if we forget what we've learned, we'll have to learn it again. We don't want to learn some lessons over again. Over to you guys. And I just want to say thank you. Absolutely. Sergeant Major Black, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Sergeant Major, it's been truly an honor speaking with you today and just reinvigorating what I've known throughout my career. And that's the Marines' willingness to listen and improve each individual Marine's capability. And that's been done, again, throughout my career in collaboration and discussions with the leadership and the enlisted uh, that I've been exposed to. And so today was truly an honor for us. So if there's ever anything that TBICOE can do for the Marine Corps, please let us know. We're here. Just know that we're doing as much as we possibly can to ensure that all service members, but in this case, the Marines are being optimized as far as their cognitive ability and monitoring, and that will continue to work toward putting a system in play that will assist the operational community for the long haul. Thanks so much, Sergeant Major. Thank you, Sergeant Major. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. Look forward to talking to you again. Absolutely. Take care, Sergeant Major. To learn more about TBICOE, clinical resources, and related educational materials, visit health.mil slash TBICOE.